0: Well, Joseph said to me or asked me what some of my favorite songs were since I only have a few weeks left here. And uh, I'm Dennis Edwards, senior pastor here at the sanctuary for those who don't know me. And um, so I put a little list together and one of them is at Calvary. And uh, I think I like it partly because of just the place it served in my, my upbringing. And um, uh, I was telling stories this morning because I got all my cries out this morning. So sorry, 11 o'clock folk, but the, uh, the, nine, the nine o'clock folks got all the ugly crying because <laughs> it was one of my childhood songs that um, just spoke the good news to me in a way that uh, a, 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 that just told that story. And, uh, and and there was a Sunday school teacher that had a good impact on me, uh, Deacon Charles, Lee, uh, Charles um, Thomas, and Deacon Thomas... Uh, just had a lot of respect for me as a young guy coming up. And when I went away to college after my freshman year, I came back just sitting in Sunday school. And then he asked me to teach the class, just that spurring moment. And uh, so I started talking to him about, about what I had learned about Jesus. And I talked about Jesus being, being the way that the gap between God and humans could be reconciled. We could come be on good terms because of Jesus. And he said, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And he got all emotional in class as I was teaching the class. And that's, that just sticks out in my mind. And it be, just became one of those songs that helped to frame my, my life. The third, the third verse always makes me cry. So I don't know if I'm gonna recite it, but it says, now I give to Jesus everything now i gladly own him as my king now my raptured soul can only sing of calvary i give to jesus everything is he your king can you say it everything is his well, I um, well that wasn't the sermon. That was just to explain why why we did at Calvary. <laughs> Some of y'all don't know the old folk song. You know, we were supposed to wear our school gear. At least the staff said that. A letter went out because it's graduation Sunday. So I'm getting texts at 7-something this morning from the staff saying, you wearing your gear? You wearing gear? I don't know if anything fits. And so we were all we're kind of joking. So you notice that none of us on staff wore our school gear. I brought my uh, Cornell alumni shirt, and um, I was going to wear it. And then I realized... I could fit it when I moved here, um, <laughs> when I moved to Minnesota, and it didn't quite fit now, so I don't know if it's Juicy Lucy's or craft beer or something, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I brought this shirt anyway just to prove I have it, even though I couldn't squeeze into it. Um, but anyway, congratulations to all the graduates. We're very excited and happy for you and grateful <clears throat> that our church does encourage you to use your gifts, use your mind. Uh, one other quick thing I just wanted to share with you, our, our denomination, we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. And the annual meeting is actually this year in Minneapolis, if you didn't know that already. So there's an opportunity for you to, to come out to some of the meetings. But the one I really want to push is on Saturday the 23rd, so a couple of weeks away, so uh, about, um, because our own Pastor Edwin Williams and our own Elder Nicole Smith are being ordained. And um, yeah, we're very excited about that. <clears throat> so it's at 7.30 on that Saturday um, at, at, at the Marriott, I believe, is where the meetings are, right, downtown, uh-huh. 7.30 p.m., yes, thank you, <laughs> yeah, you get there early at 7.30 a.m., but you, then you have to sit through all the meetings, but, um, but you want to get there earlier than 7.30 because we want all the sanctuary folks to show up and show out, huh, it's going to be packed, especially at hometown, and there's a lot of uh, folks in our conference that are getting ordained this year. So if you can get there, uh, please come out and show your love and support for, for our, our, our folks, um, Elder, um, Elder Nicole and Pastor Edrum. So yeah, that's on Saturday. You know, this past New Year's Eve, before our watch night service, most of us came to, uh, to play some games in the lobby before the service. And Miss Pearlie and I, we were on opposite sides of a spades game. And you might not notice, but Miss Pearlie can do some trash talking while she's simultaneously whipping you. And, um, and I, feel, I, I still feel like I have to apologize to my partner. My partner was Tara's husband, Chauncey, who also is a trash talker. And we were doing really well. And then all of a sudden, things just didn't, they fell apart. And I feel it was my fault. But as we were playing, Miss Pearlie and I talked about how we came from churches that didn't allow you know, to play cards. So, you know, we kept looking like, it's okay. And, uh, we're in the lobby at least. We we're, were in the lobby. <laughs> On Wednesday nights, Miss Pearlie and Jimmy and I, we often make comments about the rules that our churches had growing up. And I've told you guys even before, one time I was at a, I was at a Friday night service dressed pretty much like I am now, except I could actually tuck my shirt in my pants. And I was about 16 or so. And, um, And I remember it was a Friday night and the pastor had started these new Friday night services and the deacons would would uh, give the messages. But I went on a Friday night. I'm a 16 year old going to church on a Friday night. I thought that I would demonstrate how serious I was to these adults. And it was mostly men at the service. And and when we stood up for the benediction, the pastor came up and he kind of wrapped up, even though someone else had delivered the message. And uh, so we're about to do the benediction. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad young brother Edwards is here next time. He'll wear a tie. Oh, I'm glad that's funny for you, because it was, it wasn't funny for me—at at least not at the time. I was—I was—I was very disappointed. I felt like I had, you know, made it out on a Friday night to that sweatbox of a storefront church, and and that they would be pleased to see a teenage come to, teenager come to church. But no, I wasn't wearing a tie. If we were to compare notes, I'm sure many of us could tell plenty of stories about the way churches tried to make you. Uh, make sure that you were demonstrating your faith and the way you were supposed to be a Christian. I'm sure their motives were sincere. The problem is that Jesus and the apostles describe our faith in the Lord as liberating, but these churches made it seem more like prison. The New Testament talks about freedom, but many Christians keep talking about restrictions. So what's the deal? How, How should we understand Christian liberty? Because today we're finishing up our series of the six affirmations of the Evangelical Covenant Church. I thought it would be good for us to look into our identity a bit, especially in this pastoral transition season. And this final affirmation uh, tends to be the most controversial and difficult to grasp. The more a person leans towards seeing everything as black and white, the harder it is for them to see the gray. So we're going to remind ourselves of, the, of all six affirmations right now. We affirm the centrality of the word of God. That was the first message, and I gave it several weeks ago um, um, uh, when, and during intergen service. The necessity in the new birth, we affirm. Pastor Rose gave that message. We affirm a commitment to the whole mission of the church. Pastor Mike gave that message about our, mi- our mission and ministry. We affirm the church as a fellowship of believers. Pastor Edwin gave that message. And last week I spoke on being a, on our conscience, conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to talk about the reality of freedom in Christ. Now, there are at least three aspects of Christian freedom that I think are part of this covenant affirmation. I'm going to list them and then we'll talk about each one. But the f- three aspects of freedom through faith in Christ we're set free from the bondage of sin. That's one uh, aspect of freedom. Amen. Free from the bondage of sin. Secondly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free from legalism. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But we're free from legalism. And thirdly, freedom is a gift that we give to others. This is the one that's perhaps the most difficult for people to grasp, but we'll talk about that as well. Here's how uh, some of the leaders in our denomination express this in a publication that we have called Living Faith, Reflections on Covenant Affirmations. says the covenant church seeks the focus of what unites followers of Jesus Christ rather than what separates them. The center of our commitment is a clear faith in Jesus Christ, the centrality of the word of God, the necessity of the new birth, a commitment to the whole mission of the church. The church is a fellowship of believers and a conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit form the parameters of which freedom is experienced. Here, followers of Christ find the security to offer freedom to one another on issues that might otherwise divide. So there's some aspects of freedom that we'll get into. The first one being about bondage, uh, freedom from bondage of sin. When people get baptized, one of the questions that sometimes get asked in some liturgies, including in the covenant liturgy, is this question, do you renounce Satan and all the powers of evil? Now, that sounds like old language for some, archaic language. But the idea is to make a public declaration that one is choosing to walk in, the fr- in freedom from sin that God has made available in Jesus. This is how the Apostle Paul talks about it in our baptism in Romans chapter 6. If you were to follow with me in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle says it this way What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Freedom from sin. We might not realize it or understand it, but we are part of a cosmic battle with the forces of darkness aligned against God and the people of God. The forces of doc- darkness are under Satan's control. In fact, he's called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He rules the demonic forces. Now, I realize that there are people who don't believe in Satan, but I'm not trying to convince people of that right now. I'll just say that there should be enough empirical evidence to convince us of the presence of evil. All of us were born under this influence, and as the Apostle Paul put it, we were by nature objects of wrath. Sensible people know that... Not only are humans imperfect, we are capable of horrendous evil. Just read the newspaper. And for those who don't read, watch the television. (laughs) Sin can dominate. It can distort our view of ourselves. It can distort our view of others. It can damage our appetites. It can damage our sexual appetites, our food appetites, our appetites for significance and meaning in life. Sin not only messes up our personal decisions and actions, it also messes up God's created order. People turn on their neighbors instead of loving them. Men and women become adversaries instead of partners. Parents turn on children. Children disrespect parents. We don't see each other as made in the image of God. We lose our respect for the animals God created. We fail to steward the earth that God made. Scripture says that the entire creation is groaning, waiting for God's ultimate redemption because things are not what they should be. But Jesus came to set things right. And when he died on the cross, Satan thought he had won. He thought he killed any hopes for the redemption of God's creation. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen. Jesus rose from the dead, and in rising from the dead, he defeated the forces of Satan. Ultimate victory will be evident when Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, we are all to learn the way of Jesus, drawing more people into the faith. When we confess that sin has separated us from God, and we put our faith in Jesus, not in some magical prayer, but truly trust Jesus with our lives We are set free from the bondage of sin. That's part of what we mean by freedom. Amen. Now, Pastor Rose preached on this when we talked about the necessity of the new birth. So I'm not gonna keep on on this first point, but I wanna talk about two more aspects of freedom uh, that we uh, talk about in the Covenant Church. So not only are we free from the bondage of sin, no more shackles, no more chains, but also by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are also free From legalism. What I mean is that we are free from the rules and regulations that put people, uh, that that people actually put on us as a way of saying that we are Christian or that we're holy. It's like the rules I was getting at a few minutes ago. As free people, we live according to the Spirit, not according to the law. I'm gonna say that again. As free people, we live according to the Spirit, not according to law. But Christians really love law. But I didn't make that up. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter five, verse one, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The slavery is to the law. In this book called Galatians, the apostle Paul deals with the false notion that people prove their Christian life and their Christian faith by living according to the Old Testament law like getting circumcised or eating kosher food. There were Jewish Christians who taught that even Gentiles had to do those things to be viewed as Christian. Paul says, no, we are justified by faith and the just will live by faith, not by the law, he says. He's very emphatic about this. I think about all the rules that were laid on us and the prohibitions that came from the church in my childhood. I mean, women could not wear pants. (laughs) Jimmy and I joke, he says, amen but I never can tell if that means it should still be that way or if, or if he's just agreeing with me. So just plead the fifth on it, Jimmy, okay? <laughs> Women couldn't wear their hair in braids. And I have a lot of stories about that because this is the 70s when I'm coming up and cornrows are popular. I even had my hair and I have hair. I just choose to shave it. It didn't fall out. I choose to shave it. But I used to wear a big afro as big as Carter's. And, um, and, uh, but my sister used to cornrow my hair so then when I, when I undid the cornrows and, you know, picked it out, it would come out. That was my graduation picture was like that. I'll show you that one day before I go. But I remember when she cornrowed him one time and I was just going to go out and play with my friends and I'm running out the house and my father stopped me. What are you doing with them braids in your hair? And he was yelling at me and fussing at me. I could not go out the house with the cornrows in my hair. So, and, and that was just, wasn't just a rule on the guys, but I was doubly messed up because I had cornrows and I'm a guy. Um, but women... They had restrictions on the length of their skirts. They had restrictions on swimwear, makeup, right, jewelry. Um, We couldn't go to the movies. Sometimes we had a Christian movie in the church. And you know how Christian movies are. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) we couldn't go to parties outside the church. We couldn't listen to secular music. And if you listen to it, you better not tap your feet to it like you enjoyed it. And of course, you couldn't smoke or drink alcohol are those things really the mark of what it means to follow Jesus? I mean, you may choose not to drink alcohol, but that doesn't necessarily make you a better Christian than someone who does. You may choose not to listen to non-Christian music or go to the movies or whatever, but those things do not determine your standing with God. Yet, as I say those things, I don't want you to twist my words. I'm not, that, I'm not saying Christians are free to sin, I'm saying that we are free from sin and we're also free from legalistic judgment. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So please hear me clearly. Freedom is liberation, but freedom is not license. And I'll say it again. Freedom is liberation from bondage and and legalism, but it is not license to sin. I mean, Paul will go on and talk about that here in Galatians 5 again starting at verse 13. For you will call to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If however you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. It's funny, as a pastor. I, I meet people and they find out I'm in ministry. Then they start getting worried about what they said to me. And this just happened a couple of days ago. Somebody cursed around me and he turned to me and said, oh, I'm sorry, you're a minister. And I, I said, we've heard those words before. <laughs> and, and I started thinking, you know, this happens all the time. You could ask other pastors. I, I mean, is, they think we haven't heard curse words. And I know who, some pastors who regularly rely on such words themselves it is not my job to keep track of your curse words. I am, however, trying to keep us moving toward Jesus and wanting us to pay attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit. So keep on going in Galatians a bit more, verse, uh, starting at verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also be guided by the spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. See, without the Spirit's guidance, we'll experience the frailty of humanity, thinking and doing things that tear down others and and does not glorify God. So my goal, though, isn't to modify your behavior. My goal is to have us all reorient our entire lives. I mean, think about it. For a while, some segments of our society were getting better at modifying their behavior toward women and ethnic minorities. I mean, he tried to be polite, to use language that wasn't demeaning, tried not to overtly oppose where people worked or where they lived. But with the 2016 presidential election, we saw some of that change. The polite language and behavior was dismissed as merely political correctness. People started to become even bolder in displaying the stars and bars of the Confederacy. Young whites were comfortable marching with tiki torches, echoing the rhetoric of Nazism, defending white supremacy. There's been a visible and tangible backlash as the empire strikes back. And even though behavior had been modified for a while, it's clear that there were heavily racist and hateful beliefs just below the surface waiting for an opportunity to come out. The Holy Spirit's goal isn't simply to modify your behavior, but still have all the junk resting below the surface. The Holy Spirit isn't simply trying to get you not to have sex or not to steal or not to lie or not to break a rule. I mean, the goals are much deeper than that. The Holy Spirit's goal is to change your whole life. The Holy Spirit's goal is uh, is that we not be controlled by the sinful desires, but to be reoriented around Jesus. That's real freedom. That's real freedom. Freedom is about liberty from, from the bondage of sin. Freedom is also about living in the spirit and not according to the law and even laws that other people impose and put on us. But there's one more aspect of Christian freedom that we practice in the Covenant Church, and it's the freedom that we give as a gift to others. Now, it's pretty common knowledge among some people that Christians can be the most intolerant of people. Unfortunately, that is sort of the badge that we wear as people who are intolerant and who are always against stuff. And it seems that when we believe that we have have the truth on some topic, we can easily make others out to be evil, even demonic. This has long been the case. Now, I realize American Christians act like Christianity is only about, oh, 100 years old or so. But Christianity is actually much older than that. And we're going to take a quick walk through some of the controversies of church history. I'm going to go back to 1054 because that was a pretty significant time. They call it the Great Schism. What we know is the Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church began. It was a split with Rome, what we now call the Roman Catholic Church. That word Catholic means universal. And up until 1054, it was pretty much the only show in town. There were several theological reasons for the split and some serious ones, but some were not expressly theological. For example, the Roman church said that clergy could not wear beards. Beards. If you look at the picture of the Orthodox patriarchs, they all got these big beards. It almost looked like they were saying, we will not wear beards, just to make a point. So they got these big, huge beards. And of course, it meant nothing to the women, (laughs) because uh, women weren't allowed to be clergy. A bit later, there were the Crusades, started in the late 11th century. Military excursions to push back Muslim expansion. They were trying to take, regain control of the Holy Land to conquer pagan areas. And, and people joined the Crusades as a way of, have, of, of way of having their sins forgiven. They thought if they got into this holy fight, that God would be pleased. How ironic the Inquisition of the 13th century, heretics who admitted their errors but refused to recant were turned over to authorities and burned at the stake, burned at the stake. John Wycliffe, a famous Bible translator of the 14th century, is famous at least now in Protestant circles, you'll hear his name associated with a lot of ministries, Wycliffe, The church got angry with him. They branded him a heretic. He died of a stroke, but they were so upset with him. 43 years later, they dug up his body, burned it it to ashes and threw him in the river. Like, man, they mad at that guy. 43 years later, dig him up. And then there's this guy named Dirk Willems of Holland in the 16th century. He was rebaptized. He was part of a group that became known as Anabaptists. Which basically means re-baptizers. These were people during the Reformation who broke away from the Catholic Church, and many of them were baptized as infants, so they wanted to be rebaptized, able to confess their faith. But people branded them heretics. So they were out to kill Anabaptists, to kill them. There's a story of this guy in Holland, Dirk, and it's actually popular in Anabaptist circles. Anabaptists were the is the name uh, that's now denominationally known as Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, Brethren in Christ. Some of those groups would be called Anabaptists. Some people are Anabaptists theologically, but not in a denomination like that. But this guy, Dirk Williams, was running away from people who were trying to arrest him, and he was running across a frozen pond. And, and the guy chasing him fell through the ice and was drowning in the freezing water. Dirk turned around and rescued the guy. This is very popular in Mennonite circles. They tell this story a lot. Because the guy went back and showed love to his enemy, rescued the guy. They still arrested him, said he was guilty of rebaptizing, and they burned him at the stake. Not only were Anabaptists persecuted by the Roman Church, they were persecuted by other Protestants. John Calvin and other reformers persecuted the Anabaptists. More in the 16th century, hot times apparently. William Tyndall, who worked to get the Bible translated into English, was brought to trial for heresy in 1536, and he was strangled and burned at the stake. I don't know why he had to do both things. they strangled him and burned him at the stake. His last prayer was, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. It was three years later that Henry VIII, yeah, that guy, with all the wives, he, he, he required that uh, the Bible be in English in all of the parishes in England. By the way, that English Bible predates the King James, which didn't come in until 1611, but that's beside the point. But they had English Bibles. But it's that same Henry VIII who wanted to have a divorce or an annulment of his marriage, couldn't get it from the Pope, started the whole Church of England. The Queen is the head of the Church of England today. I mean, those are a few, just a few of the classic divisions in Christianity, and we can laugh at them now because they seem absurd to us, but there have always been divisions. Even in contemporary times. I mean, we we fuss over everything from speaking in tongues to doing communion a certain way, baptism a certain way, what it means. I mean, how we view the end times. People separate over all kinds of things. We can be quick to call people heretics and draw lines of separation. So at this point, it always makes me think of this, um, this classic Christian joke that was ranked as the funniest religious joke ever by whoever ranks jokes. So I've told it before, but for those who didn't hear it, you'll hear it again. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? (laughs) He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Me, too. Northern Conservative Baptists or Northern Liberal Baptists? He said Northern Conservative Baptists. Me, too. Northern Conservative Baptists, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region! Me, too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. (laughs) Now, the joke is funny because there's some truth to it. We can be united on so many things, but be quick to throw people out who disagree with us on some matters. What I mean by a gift of freedom is that I'm secure enough in what I believe that I give you the freedom to disagree with me this type of freedom freaks out some Christians. I know because some people operate better with laws. But for example, in the covenant church, parents can decide whether to have their children baptized or dedicated. And some want their children dedicated, and then later they'll have them baptized when they're older. But we have parents here who have had their children baptized. There's some people, you you can do both of those things. Some denominations don't allow women to be ordained or even preach. I grew up in a church, they couldn't even step up on the pulpit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's Jimmy again. I don't know what to do with the amen, but I right, appreciate it, Jimmy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's, we have a similar background, so we do laugh about it a lot. But in the covenant church, we ordain women, we affirm our sisters, and we will even have fellowship with people who don't agree with us. In the, same, in the evangelical covenant church, we have people who have different views of the end times. And I'm sure there are a whole lot of other areas of disagreement. So how do we practice this kind of freedom? What does it take for us to give freedoms to others who disagree with us on certain matters? And we're at an interesting point in our history right now. There's disagreement in the covenant church over same-sex relationships, particularly marriage. People are at different places on the topic. Same-sex relationships, same-sex activity, same-sex attraction. How do we understand these things? And there are those in the denomination who don't agree that our current policy is for clergy not to officiate same-sex marriages. And there are people here at the sanctuary who certainly disagree about those issues related to sexuality and gender. And such disagreements are emotionally very difficult. I know it. I mean, some people are mad at me because I should be preaching harder about, about certain things that they would preach harder about. Now, I'm no prophet on this matter but I think our denomination has the ability to navigate these waters because we expressly say we have a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. We have a history of wrestling with tough issues, and we respect that we're not just talking about policies, but about people. Now, please keep praying because the conference here I mentioned is here in Minneapolis this year, and that'll be one of the topics that'll come up during this annual meeting. So as I finish up, though, I want to offer a few practical suggestions on how do you offer the gift of freedom when you disagree on theological matters. The first thing is remember our commitment to the centrality of scripture and the question that the early covenanters asked, where is it written? In other words, it's important to recognize that disagreements emerge from honest approaches to Scripture, not just from personal preferences or your bias or cultural trends. I mean, history has demonstrated that prevailing cultural views can be wrong. We've seen this over and over again. So, so where is it written? Secondly, recognize that only God knows everything, we don't. I know this is hard for some people to admit, but some people get pretty self-righteous thinking that they know more about God than what God has actually revealed uh, to humanity. I mean, most of us don't know much about quantum mechanics and I think God is more complex than quantum mechanics. His ways are not my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts. As far as the heaven is above the earth, so is God's thoughts above mine. So recognize we don't know everything. Thirdly, never stop learning. Now, it's been about 30 years I've been in, in uh, church ministry or in a professional way, and, and, uh, and I've learned a lot of Christians aren't really that interested in learning. Now, they might say they are. They'll even go to Bible study. But what they're comfortable in Bible study is hearing people say what they already believe. That's not necessarily learning, <laughs> but but it, it could be. I mean, sometimes learning is affirming what you know. But we get very uncomfortable if somebody says something that's different than what we have already held on to before. And it's hard for us. It's hard for Christians. I was thinking about this, and I have a lot of examples as a, as a seminary professor, but one of the things I think about is, is the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the saying, you know, there's a saying in the book where he says there's nothing new under the sun. Now from the beginning after the beginning of the book, before the closing of the book, this guy has been musing about life and expressing his cynicism throughout the whole book, if you read the book. He complains about stuff. I've seen this, and I've seen this. Everything's meaningless. And that expression shows up, King James says, translates it as vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So this guy's going around looking at life saying, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. And he gets to this place where he goes, there's nothing new under the sun. And he's wrong. There's stuff new under the sun all the time cars were new, computers were new. I mean, going to space is new, but we recite it like it's this rule. There's nothing new under the sun. And we say it all the time because we say, well, what he really means is that people don't change. People are in essence the same. He's not saying that. He's looking at stuff in life and saying, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all meaningless. Well, he's wrong. Now you might say, Dennis, I don't agree with you. And that's perfectly fine because I grant you the freedom to disagree with me with things. This is how this works. All right. Four, respect the theological work that has gone on for centuries. I mean, theological inquiry, no matter how spiritual you and your friends are, didn't start with you. I mean, you may have sat under a wonderful communicator and a godly leader, but that person didn't write the scripture and they didn't even meet the humans who did. I mean, for example, it took many years for the church to work out a theology of the Trinity, And and we might find new ways to describe the Trinity or new ways to understand the Trinity. But at this point, denying the Trinity is a heresy. People knock on my door and tell me that Jesus is not God. I don't really have time for this. The church has long established that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So I want to respect the the theological inquiry that has gone on before me. And then fifthly, be humble. Humility can go a long way in dealing with theological differences. I'm different now than I was when I was a younger man in a lot of ways. I could fit those t-shirts back then. But apart from that, I'm different in how I used to think of bib- biblical teaching. I used to think it was my job to find, sniff out error, and correct people, because that was the people that were modeling that for me, find all those people with mistakes and correct them. This is like a lot of what's happening on, on uh, Facebook, especially in theological conversations. You're wrong. Let me fix you. I don't think that way actually much anymore. I take my job, as I mentioned to you several weeks ago, to be like Ezra, whose job it was to study God's word, then to put it into practice, and then to teach it. And I accept that the Holy Spirit will work to confirm my understanding of scripture or to correct my understanding, and to do the same for everyone else. That's how I operate. We could probably come up with more things on this list, but my point is that freedom can be a gift that we give others when we have been set free, we don't need to put ourselves back in bondage. And and the only law we take is the royal law to love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't need to put anyone else in bondage through, through legalism, telling them how they should live the Christian life. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Are you free today? Have you been set free from the bondage of sin? Do you believe that the Lord has his arms outstretched to welcome you or are they folded because he's always angry with you? I actually think that your view of God will depend on how you heard my message about freedom today. Because when I was a kid, this is how I viewed God, waiting for me to get my act together so I could be worthy of this title Christian. I don't see God that way anymore. I see God as saying, come on, Dennis, I'm pulling for you. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. I encourage you today to experience freedom from the Lord, a gift of freedom. I encourage you to experience freedom from sin, freedom from legalism, and even freedom from having to prove your right all the time. I invite you to stand firm in the liberty that comes through Christ. I'm going to invite the altar team to come forward and offer a word of prayer right now. Lord God, I thank you for this time that we've had together. And I pray, Lord God, for us to wrestle with and reconcile ourselves to the way you have operated in the world. To send your one and only son Jesus, to live for us. And then when he died, you raised him from the dead to validate all that he did and said, so we can be free from the bondage of sin. And thank you, Lord, that we can follow your spirit and not have to follow human laws that are put on us to try to demonstrate something to people who are pharisaical in their outlook. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the freedom to follow your spirit And then, Lord, I pray with this freedom, we would grant others grace. We would be free to share with others and give them a gift to not have to be just like us. So I pray, Lord God, that you would guide us in that, that we would be so sensitive to your spirit that we would not worry about the rule list, but we would be so concerned about hearing your voice. And now I pray, Lord God, for anyone who might be even wrestling with what I said today or somebody who's contemplating walking away from you or has never even committed to following you, I pray, Lord God, you'd prompt them right now by your spirit to come and pray with one of our friends up here at the altar and that we would find peace in you, that they would be reconciled to you and you would do your glory, your work through them. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.